This is Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you each month by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and I'm pretty pumped to be here with my new co-host, Caitlin Barker, who is making her debut on the airwaves with this episode. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to WERU. Hi, Holly. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Really excited for my first uh, debut show. I'm really excited for today's show too. Who did you interview? Um, I talked to a few homesteaders who homestead in rural Maine. First, I talked with Sigwini and Nathan Dana, who have been homesteading um, just for the last few years. And I also talked with Angela DeRosa, who has homesteaded for over 30 years in rural Maine. That sounds like a great lineup. Um, that's some serious homesteading knowledge. What did you all talk about? Yeah, we um, we talked about a variety of topics. Um, a lot of things have changed in homesteading over the years, um, and that was really apparent in the interviews, but a lot of things have stayed the same, um, especially Maine winters. Those are still really tough, especially for homesteaders, but um, I'm really excited for you to hear the interviews. I can't wait to listen. Up first is Caitlin Barker with Sigwini and Nathan Dana of the Dana Homestead. As always, archives of previous episodes of Common Ground Radio can be found on weru.org as well as on the WERU app. Hi, Sigwini. Hi, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining me for Common Ground Radio today. Um, I'm thinking maybe we could start by hearing a little background about the two of you, where you're located, and what homesteading looks like for the two of you. Sure. Uh, so we are both located in Solon, and I actually grew up in this town right across the street from where we live now. And um, I grew up right across the river, actually, so the next town over. And what's your what's your homestead like? Tell me a little bit about about it. Um, I would say it's kind of in its beginning stage. It's off grid, so everything for electricity comes from our solar. Um, you know, we got an outhouse and composting toilet. We've only got a few chickens and some bees, but the main focus a lot of the time is the garden and then just trying to kind of like set the house up so it's nice and livable. Yeah, so the house itself is about a half mile in from the road that it's on. Um, it's a dirt road. We don't have power lines at the end of our driveway or any of that sort of stuff. Um, so when we were looking to kind of start a homestead, um, kind of thing. This was a hunting cabin and we were, we were at the stage where we were planning electricity um, and the idea of hooking electricity up to the power grid uh, was super cost prohibitive. Um, so we kind of went through the avenue of, uh, you know, setting up some off-grid solar. We had some friends that had lived off-grid uh, off their solar for a few years and used them as kind of a resource and uh, got it set up so that I don't really think I ever want to go back. Nice. <laughs> Definitely. So on that note, have the two of you lived off-grid before or is this your first foray into off-grid living? Um, so the first place that I ever lived, which I don't quite remember, it wasn't quite off-grid, but it was a pretty rusty cabin that like my parents had to snowshoe in a mile. 
um, in the winter time because it wasn't plowed, but it did have electricity, but no like running water in the winter. So they'd have to like go out on the ice and chop it. Um, but I wouldn't really say that either of us have really lived off grid before living here. Very much a no for me. Um, I grew up in a nice big um, or relatively large um, house in, you know, middle class uh, rural America, really. Um, you know, growing up with a big garage and doing all kinds of engineering projects and that sort of stuff. So um, by the very nature of, you know, how I was raised, we, we were very much not in this type of lifestyle. It was more of like an industrial kind of thing. Mm -hmm. How was that transition? For, for me, it's wonderful because um, I transition out here. I've got, you know, deep woods. I don't have very many neighbors. It's really quiet. But living this sort of lifestyle, there's always, you know, one of those engineering-esque type problems um, for me to go solve. And, and they're never ending. You know, some of the, the best engineers out there are old school farmers because they have all these problems that arise and they need to come up with something for a, a solution to that. So, I mean, I kind of feel right at home with having a big laundry list of, you know, our water needs fixing so how am I going to rig that to you know not freeze anymore or something like that because there's not really a uh, way that we do things that it's you know standard by the book the way that that your normal house does in in every day out there kind of stuff yeah continuous problem solving sounds like right. yeah <laughs> sounds like it appeals to you <laughs> yeah how about you Sigmund how was the transition um, it really wasn't that bad for me just cause like, um, growing up, my parents were eco warriors. And so by choice, um, we didn't have like hot running water. So they turned the oil furnace off just so we wouldn't burn oil. So if we wanted hot water, we had to either put it on the wood stove in the winter time or, um, warm it up on the electric stove in the summertime. So there's kind of like aspects like that, where it's, you can't just turn on the tap. You got to do a little bit of figuring out, lugging some water, stuff like that. And then also I was very outdoorsy growing up. Um, so a lot of this is second nature. Plus I've kind of wanted to do this ever since I was in high school. Um, so I was looking forward to that transition. Hmm. Yeah. I think like the biggest or hardest part about the transition is that when problems do arise, how do I not go into like panic mode? <laughs> Um, but it's very, I'm very fortunate that Nathan has a lot of those skills to right. fix those things. Right. It's kind of just ended up really working out well, where you've always kind of had the vision to do this sort of stuff, um, but not necessarily known how you wanted to do it. And I kind of the opposite, yeah. um, knew how to do it, but, uh, didn't necessarily have that vision from the beginning. Um, although I think we kind of share that vision a little bit more now. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm hmm Sounds like a, a nice match. Yes. <laughs> um, I wondered if either of you or both of you could speak to your favorite parts about homesteading. Um, I, I really love the kind of like the closer you are to nature. That kind of sounds like kind of cheesy, but yeah. Um, just with all the things that you have to do, all the projects, um, and then of course having garden and whatnot, you just really become more in tuned with the land around you you um you know 
you know, that in this area, this plant is going to grow and I can harvest it at this time. Um, the water, you know, flows in this certain way. There's are no pools in this area. So in the springtime, don't like bother the frogs over there, things like that. Um, and just really having a space to be outside without having to worry about other people um, is really, really nice. And I think that's really my favorite part is just being able to be outside all the time. Uh, for me, I think my favorite part is twofold, where number one, I know it sounds kind of funny hearing this from a teacher, but I'm a super introvert and I really don't like being around other people. Um, and this is kind of the perfect situation for me where I'm way out in the middle of nowhere and, and barely bump into folks. And number two, um, my, my influence on, you know, global systems and whatnot stays really small this way. So like, for instance, um, if we're, you know, building a new outhouse or something like that, um, I know where all the resources specifically came from for that particular project or as much of them as possible. You know, we'll go, we'll cut down a tree, we'll put it on a sawmill, we'll saw that up. We'll know where all of those components physically came from to keep that circle as small as possible. Uh, same thing with food, really. Um, we grow as much of the food as we really can with the garden setup that we have now and we try and supplement that as much as possible with farmers market type stuff so we keep again that food circle as close to our house as possible to me that's just a really rewarding process trying to live as locally as possible and 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 really take ownership of the um, impact that i'm making on the particular environment around me as well because it's really easy to go to a store and buy something. It's less easy to, you know, go from the original source, pluck that from the original source and bring it all the way through so that, that you have 100% ownership of and know the entire process of what it is you are doing um, to, to the world around you. Mm -hmm. You spoke a little about um teaching or working outside the home. Can you talk to me about work-life balance, like how you balance homesteading with the two of you? There is no such thing as work-life balance. Oh um, we, we don't take very much time at all to do like resting or anything like that. Um, you know, during the school year, we get up way early. Um, we get to school by about seven o'clock in the morning and school is about an hour and 15 minutes away. Um, we go through the school day. Currently right now, we are also coaching track. So we host uh, track practice at the very end of the school day. Um, sometimes we have meets or whatnot and we get home at around 5, 5.30ish at night. Um, when we have a track meet, we typically get home maybe about 10 o'clock at night and then we start our farm chores um to do that sort of stuff so it's uh we we just had a uh article come out in down east and i think one of my favorite quotes they took away from it is you know i mentioned that there's a lot of work to this lifestyle and there's a lot of work to teaching and i don't actually re recommend trying to do both at the same time because it is a lot <laughs> as a former teacher myself i'm really amazed <laughs> totally amazed. <laughs> Um, how about, uh, you spoke a little bit about, uh, an article that was done in down East. You're getting some attention from a, a couple different media outlets. Can you talk to me about how, um, technology plays into your homesteading? Cause I think that's an important part of it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before the pandemic, a handful of months before the pandemic, um, TikTok was starting to get really big and it's all my students were talking about. I remember one in particular was doing like this renegade dance thing. I was like, what is this? I don't know. Um, and then they kind of convinced me, oh, Mrs. Dana, you should get a TikTok. And so I actually started one initially for teaching, but I didn't, I was kind of bored with it. And then I was just kind of like, hey, what if we made one? for the homestead, just like have fun, see where it goes. And so we made a very silly video um, skating around on our little pond, posted it, just kind of like an introductory thing. And um, overnight we had 400,000 views and like 28,000 um, followers. And we're like, oh, okay, I guess people want to see this. <laughs> and so since then, um, we've really been just kind of sharing what our life is like. There's so many people that have never been exposed to this type of a lifestyle or anything like this. Cause you know, they live in cities or just more urban areas. And so they kind of vicariously live through us. So we kind of want to serve as like less of a, this is how you do it. And more of a, you can do it. It is doable. Um, more of like an inspiration um, type of, of a channel, but I love mixing um, technology and homesteading off gridness because people are like, wait, what? You you can have internet when you live off grid? What's that? And mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun to, to use it as an educational tool. Um, that being said, with all of the other stuff that we do, uh, at least in my mind frame, um, all the social media stuff comes way be behind uh, in importance, um, you know, back burner to all of the other life type stuff that we do. So there are some times that we take kind of extended leaves of absence from posting on TikTok or Instagram or whatever else that we, we share that stuff on um, simply because there is so much that we're trying to do at the same time that, that also obsessing over likes and views and all that other stuff just seems a downright silly and, and be like, I have, I don't want to say more important stuff to do, but stuff that keeps my life running. Um, whereas sometimes social media, I know can, can really take over some folks' lives and it feels like the most important thing ever. Uh, I, I try and make sure that, that that's not kind of running the show here, that we're doing what we're doing and we use it as an educational tool as long as it's, you know, wanted, um, and, and people want to access it and, and have that sort of knowledge. Yeah, there's a lot of times where we are just doing our day-to-day -day life chores or things like that. And we're like, oh shoot, we should be filming this, but <laughs> ah, don't feel like it. It's just more efficient to not have to worry about setting up mm -hmm. a camera. Um, it's or twice the amount of work to do the same task with the camera running <laughs> while you're talking to it. Yeah. It is to just do it in the first place right. so you really kind of have to be in the right mindset and mood to to have the extra time and energy to spend on that sort of thing too absolutely I also really love listening to like podcasts audiobooks or music and you can't film and have those at the same time so there's times where I'm just like nope I need like my me time I need to just like learn some cool squid facts or whatever it is that I'm listening to instead of like try to put on a show um and kind of, I guess, going back to like the work-life homestead balance um, and social media, one of the things that I have sort of given up on in terms of social media is 
we did start a YouTube channel. Um, soon after we got a TikTok account, a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, we want you know longer content. And so we did put up a handful of YouTube videos and it just got to the point where I was like, nope, this is uh, too much for me to do because while I enjoy filming and editing videos, it was just a little too time consuming and a little bit draining. So I've yeah. kind of, it's still there, but it's not my main priority. The TikToks are a lot easier to put together since they're such a shorter format. And they're also like, it's a different culture around TikToks than it is YouTube. Um, YouTube educational videos seem to be kind of like highly doctored and it's almost like doing a formal lesson plan. Whereas the, the format for doing a TikTok is like really raw and really dirty and just like you film it, you give the content, you send it on its merry way. Um, it's, I don't want to say minimal effort, but it's, it's less editorial effort, less, you know, doctoring up kind of stuff. And, and it's a lot easier to access from a creative standpoint than setting down for a half hour for every video or more for every video to doctor it up and make it like this quote unquote professional learning kind of video sort of thing. And it seems like you're having a really significant impact reaching a wider audience with TikTok anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we currently have 80 something thousand, 3000 yeah. <laughs> uh, followers. And then on YouTube, we have like a modest 400 something. But yeah, I think just the shorter format works better for us and for our yeah. audience that we're trying to reach. It also breaks really the huge topic of what we're working with mm -hmm. into very small digestible chunks. Um, and, and it gives the folks that are, you know, using it as an educational resource, almost a little bit more say in, in the direction and what they learn about. So like, if there's a particular topic that we, you know, pitch and start talking about and nobody's interested in it, then, well, we won't elaborate on that for 45 more minutes. Um, we'll stay with the stuff that people seem interested in or asking questions about or that yes. sort of stuff. Yeah, the question feature on TikTok, I love that. So if we do just like, a, hey, this is, you know, a comp or if we just briefly mention we use a composting toilet, then we get people asking, you know, the questions, what's mm -hmm. a composting toilet? How does it work? And then I love that feature. You can just click on their question and record a video responding directly to mm -hmm. their question. And yeah. then a lot of times you get more questions. And so yeah. it kind of becomes this whole long, short series of right. things that people are actually interested and, in. And again, those responses to questions are like a really raw form of footage where it's more of like a conversation and less of like a doctored kind of, <laughs> this is how you do this sort of thing. And and I, I feel like a lot of people with their... Uh, you know, attention spans now and all of that other stuff, making it more of like a conversation and more personal like that is, is also making that information more accessible to folks. Mm -hmm. So interesting. So different probably than how people think of homesteading, but utilize mm -hmm. technology as an educational tool. That's, a, that's mm -hmm. really cool. Um, what are your long-term goals for your homestead? I would like to get more animals at some point. Um, <laughs> I really, really want to have Highland cattle um, because fuzzy cows are the best. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I, I keep getting repeatedly told that I need to finish working on the house before I build a barn for like cows mm -hmm. and stuff. I, I may disagree, but unfortunately, um, I don't think I'm the one that gets to make that choice. So I need to finish working on a house and, and make mm -hmm. it more finished before moving on to 
a barn for you know highland cows and and pigs and goats and whatever else yeah i would say we have a lot of of goals but like maybe the first one is finishing ish <laughs> the house yeah um because right now it's just like a small one bedroom 750 square feet yep um, and it and, was it was a hunting cabin yeah. um so although it was insulated and whatnot it wasn't really meant to be you know a four season house and it had a lot of rot issues and a lot of that sort of stuff so basically it's just been completely stripped bare bones and we're trying to you know live in 750 square feet and also rebuild that 750 square feet is very tight Mm -hmm. uh and and kind of poses its own challenges as well yeah like you are viewing the untouched part the part that yeah. didn't get ripped apart this is the this is the, this is <laughs> the, the nice, nice the zoom corner <laughs> as opposed to the the rotten corner or previously rotten corner that's like spray foam and open studs <laughs> for yeah. our listeners there's some beautiful it looks like a beautiful cabin behind Sigwini and nathan <laughs> It, it was a very beautiful cabin. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> years of leaking roof kind of uh, put the nail in the coffin for that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU 89.9 FM Blue Hill. On today's show, we're discussing homesteading in Maine. I'm your host, Caitlin Barker, and I'm speaking now with Sigwini and Nathan Dana of the Dana Homestead. So continuing on our conversation... Um, what advice would you give to those who are just getting in? You have a pretty significant following on social media. My guess is based on the demographic of those who utilize social media, specifically TikTok, that it's a younger demographic. So what advice do you give people new to homesteading or interested in it? I think specifically to the way that we're doing things. So like off-grid homesteady, living closer to the earth kind of stuff. Um, I'll pass on the best piece of advice that I think we got, which would be from a, a, a good friend, Jesse Logan, um, who he's, he's our friend that taught us a lot of the off-grid sort of stuff is don't focus on trying to make it perfect the first time around. Do everything you can to make it, you know, um, livable, to, to make it work, but don't focus on going out there and making everything perfect because it'll never end up being perfect. Just do what you can now and make the most of it. Um, I would also say like limit the amount of projects you're taking on. <laughs> <laughs> um, just cause a lot of times with people with homesteading, you know, they see the gardening, they see the fruit trees, they see all the animals, they want to try a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and while we want to do that as well, we've also kind of been smart in particularly like the animals that we're taking yeah. on. Like we want to have cows, we want to have goats, we want to have pigs, but right now with our two dogs, our bees and our chickens and not living or not working right close to where we live, it would honestly be irresponsible to those animals if we were, because we wouldn't be able to give them our um, full attention that they really need. So, and that's just talking about with animals, but even with other types of projects, you really want to, as much as you want to do everything all at once, it's also really important to kind of limit it down to what do you really need to be able to say, yeah. survive a winter in Maine, because winter in Maine is rough, and it's always going to be rough when uh, you're starting a homestead, especially if like you have to, a concern about heating your house, keeping the water from freezing, and things like right. that. So it's really, it's a process, um, and 
it's it's unrealistic to expect it to ha to happen overnight. Um, so you know, be selective with what it is you're choosing to do. Get it good enough so that it works, and then be totally willing to move on to the next thing. Um, and I think another thing that just popped in my head too is is um, if you are not willing to go in 110%, um, maybe it's not really for you. Um, and that's okay. But recognizing that can save you a whole lot of headache, a whole lot of you know financial investment, emotional investment, et cetera. Because um, saying that it's a lot of work um, or that it's you know, taxing in, in every sense of the word uh, is a enormous understatement. Um, if you ask any farmer, any homesteader, they probably will tell you that it is an obscene amount of work to this lifestyle um, just to make it work. Mm -hmm. So if someone maybe wants to take a few steps to live a more sustainable life, if they're not ready to jump in all the way, what are some things that um, someone could do to work towards that goal? So I think something that really helped us when we were starting out is find somebody that's doing something similar and ask them if they're cool to have a big slumber party, right? Go spend a few days to see what they're doing, see a system that actually works, see, you know, a functioning homestead that's like what you want it to be um, or what you think you want it to be. And then have that conversation with the, the people who run that, that honest, open conversation of what works and what doesn't. Um, because reading about it in a book or just listening to it for somebody talking on the radio or whatnot doesn't give you that immersive experience that you you really need to you know walk away and kind of be ready to to seriously consider something like that for sustainability i think like the easiest thing or the kind of the simplest thing that anyone could do is grow some of your own mm -hmm. food um I think the statistic is 40% of food produced in America gets thrown away and that's unacceptable. And I know just with myself, um, growing food versus buying it in the store, for whatever reason, if I buy something in the store and it has a bad spot, I don't feel as bad just composting it or throwing it away in some people's cases. But when I grow that food, I'm like, oh no, there's this tiny little spot. Well, I'll just eat around it or cut that spot off because I put so much work and care and love into this tomato or beet or onion or whatever that I don't want to waste any of it. And so what I've noticed is like, especially in the winter months, that's when I start to, or we start to buy food more from the grocery store. I try to carry that same mentality into that food. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to eat this pepper anymore because it's got a bad spot. Oh, wait, no, someone put a lot of work into this. And I should not just throw that away. I should treat it as if it's something that I grew and it'll help with the 40% of food being wasted. Right. And that also helps too. If you have a, have something for a farmer's market that goes, you know, even sporadically through the winter, probably not necessarily with peppers, but more so with root vegetables, um, because you might have a, a name and a face that put that hard work into that particular thing. Um, so it's a lot harder to treat something as disposable, um, when you have that attachment or, or, you know, somebody who put their heart and soul into this thing, than it is, you know, something you just paid 50 cents for or whatever, um, in a grocery store that's just replenishes itself magically. Yeah. It sounds like it, 
the homesteading for you really fosters a sense of connection to your food that carries on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about, um, you know, people starting out to find that um, support, those mentors to learn, learn from. Did the two of you have mentors who you learn from or people who you connect with and support you in your community? Yeah. So um, Jesse Logan, again, helped us with a lot of this stuff. Um, a lot of inspiration and learning and whatnot actually happened for me specifically. I can't speak for Sega, obviously, but uh, at the Common Ground Fair, um, because there's people from every walk of life that's, you know, doing something similar and, and taking inspiration from and, learn, and learning from those folks. Um, there's also a number of uh, folks in our town that have been living off grid for a very long time. Um, you know, some of which are our immediate neighbors, some of which are down the road just a little bit. Um, folks like that have been, you know, really eager to share their knowledge and, you know, how their setup works um, and kind of walk us through that whole learning process while we were getting set up. Um, you know, even if they're not necessarily the most, you know, vocal or, or um, in the spotlight members of your community, I bet there's people around, you know, just about everybody who's doing something kind of like this, where they come out of the woodwork a little bit when you're, uh, you know, starting this sort of thing and, and are totally willing to help. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, we're nearing the end of our interview, but I'm wondering if either of you have anything else you wanna add, some highlights of homesteading or um, fun parts that you wanna talk about or not so fun parts? Um, I would say not so fun parts would be our very first winter here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, we had a too small of a wood stove, not enough insulation, uh, not enough firewood. We literally ran out of firewood. Um, we actually went into the winter without a backup heater and we were volunteering to be part of our school play. And so we got back late one night and it was literally in the forties in our house, low forties. Low 40s. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, we had a really good fire when we left and now it's freezing in here. So that Thanksgiving, we, um, actually Nathan and his dad cut a huge hole in the wall and put up in a backup heater so that, um, yeah, we would have that. So we got a bigger wood stove the next year. We have more insulation and now I know we barely ever use our backup heater oh, yeah. now. Yeah. So I would say battling with freezing water is the top most annoying thing. <laughs> Great. Anything you want to add, Nathan? I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, there was a lot of growing pains at first, mm -hmm. uh, but once we kind of figured out how to make things work for us the way we wanted them to, um, it's it's really not that hard to give up some of those luxuries of you know the normal living that a lot of folks have to, to do something like this once you get it the way and dialed in how you want it. Um, but there was definitely those growing pains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I want to thank both of you so much for joining me today on Common Ground Radio. Uh, it was really fun to hear from the two of you and learn about the work you're doing on your homestead um, and uh, appreciate you speaking with me today. 
Thank you for having us. This has been great. Thanks. If you're just tuning in, I'm Caitlin Barker, and this is Common Ground Radio on 89.9 WERU. Next up, I'm going to be speaking with Angela DeRosa, who, along with her husband, Steve Kayard, has been homesteading in Wellington, Maine since the late 1980s. Hi, Angela. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, I'd love to start maybe by hearing all about your homestead. Give us a little background. My husband, Steve Kayard, and I moved here from West Virginia in... 1987, and we've been on the same spot ever since. Um, I had a daughter, Amber Reed, who came with us, and Steve was actually just passing through West Virginia. He had been living in Alaska, and his mother introduced me to him, and then it was like I would have followed him to the ends of the earth, but not to Alaska. (laughs) So uh, we basically, I had been wanting to get back to the land for years, And this week when I've been thinking about like homesteading and all that, I actually did homesteading when I lived in West Virginia. It was, I was living on the Ohio side of the river, but it was right in this like urban wasteland. And I don't want to even use that word because nature is still there and it's still beautiful in places. And, you know, we had gardens, we, we did passive uh, solar energy there. At the point when I met Steve, I couldn't work it out with anyone there to actually get onto the land. I wanted to live out on the land. I wanted to have a big garden. At that time, I wanted to have animals. Um, I wanted to try myself out in all these ways. And I wasn't really able to make that happen down there. So when I met Steve, um, I was 32, I guess. And so I had already had a life. I had a great circle of friends. I ran a co-op, a food co-op, and I had a child. So the decision to come up here uh, was, wasn't uh, an easy one, but it was really and truly about, I just had this immense curiosity. I guess you'd say I was a flower child. Uh, I don't really say I was a hippie because I was always into like, whoa, you know, why can't we all get along and life is beautiful. And that came, of course, out of the times I was born into. But it also came from my grandparents who were, both sets of them were Italian immigrants. They were peasants and uh, they moved to West Virginia for to work in the coal mines and they were late on that whole arc of the European immigration to the US. They they were at the end of it. And I was able to know my mother's parents really well um, because of how old my grandmother was when she had my mother and then how young my mother was when she had me. So we skipped like a generation. And I used to stay with them and they had an outhouse. I had to use a pea pot. They called it a pishatuda. But anyway, and they had all these gardens that they terraced along the hillside, really creating the same sort of place they had in West Virginia. I mean, in Italy, Southern Italy with, you know, grapes and fruit trees. And they had a root cellar. My grandmother canned everything. And they had a water pipe coming out of the hill that, you know, that's how they got their water, cold water only, of course. And 
And I just was fascinated by their life. It just like awoke something in me. Um, and also they, I shouldn't say awoke, I was, I was born with it, but <laughs> anyway, it nurtured it. And um, at the same time, my dad really tried to keep all the Italian traditions alive in terms of food and growing and baking and all this kind of stuff. So that's the background, that's the setting. And also this great love of nature, you know, just the clouds and the trees and the birds and the woods and the streams. And I grew up in that. I didn't know the names of all of it. Um, like Steve is, my husband is a great naturalist and woodsman, and he just knows everything about everything. I just was like in love with everything. So, um, so anyway, so the two things just came together. And when I met Steve, I'm like, yeah, but I'm not going to Alaska. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere where I have to use a plane to get back to see my family. It was extremely exhausting when we first got here. Uh, I was going on like pure energy and I just have one little vignette um, about the day we arrived, which anybody who's come to Maine from ports, point south will just understand this totally. It's like, we came, we came up here in July of 87, we found this place. And I'm gonna give a shout out to Carol Dove. She knew Steve from tree planting. And so she, and she's, she's a Mainer and she's just a fierce person. She took us around to all these, all these homesteads, early kind of homesteads that then people had left basically, you know, cause in order to stay here, truly to stay on the land, you have to love it. I mean, you have to love it. You have to, you just do. I mean, and not everybody wants to do that physical level work that it takes. And that's no shame or crime. It's just some people are really want that. And so anyways, so she brought, we found this place in July. It was like, oh, the feng shui of the driveway. You know, it's like, Oh my God. And even the pictures of me, which you see, I look back to the pictures recently and I'm just like, I'm so in love with Steve. I'm like going on this big adventure. And, and my family were aghast. Andy uh, Reed, my daughter's father, he was aghast. Everybody was like, she is really going off the deep end this time. We thought that was a phase. It's not a phase. She's going to Maine. And I had so much um, going in on inside of me about that and leaving the Italian family, leaving the homeland, not fulfilling that immigrant dream of successful daughter, married to a more successful man, of course. <laughs> um, anyway, so we finally got up here and Amber has a, she had a little rabbit and a cat, which were in the back seat. And we went the long way all through New England. I have no idea why I took, I think I wanted to see the White Mountains or something. I'm, and so we came the hard way up and we got here and I just looked, I went in the house and I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? What, what am I gonna do? We can't even live in here. We can't even stay in here tonight. And I went outside and I took my sleeping bag out of the car and by then the 
weeds had grown up so much, you know, the grass, and I laid it on those leaves and it was like a, a spongy, you know how you put a sleeping bag, it's just like all, and I laid down there and I just looked up at the sky and I'm like, oh my God. And I kind of wailed. Um, I didn't bring a broom. <laughs> and broom and um so I just laid out there and for a while and cried and you know and in the meantime Amber and Steve are in the house they're all wrestling around I'm not paying attention a little while Amber comes outside and she's mom mom come in come in Steve made a broom (laughs) So he had, he had um, taken some fur tips and tied them on the end of a stick and Amber was in there sweeping. (laughs) So anyway, long, long story short, it went from there and we camped for two weeks outside till we could get the house livable. Wow. And livable was clean enough, you know, there's no way to completely get it ready. Um, But we did what we could. And at that time we were carrying water. So then onto the actual nuts and bolts of living here. So we're off the grid. We started out with just a couple used panel, everything we've done, we've paid as we go. We've never incurred a bunch of debt. I don't have anything against that or anything. It's just, we didn't really have the jobs to support that at that time. So we started out with kerosene, and gas, some a couple glass lights. And then we just went from there. We got a couple panels. We, you know, I ordered stuff from that Amish company in Ohio. I forget um, various kinds of things that we used at first, but that first winter was rough. Well, this is where you see somebody comes from West Virginia. This is what I got to say about Maine. It's not the intensity because I love the winter. I just love it. I love the stillness. I love the stars, the darkness. It's just, I love fires. I love cinema fires and I just love all that stuff. But the duration, oh my God, come March. I'm like, you're kidding me. Uh, This is like, whoa, you know, and um, that was really hard that first year. And, um, and Steve and I kind of split up. I thought, I gotta go, I'm going back to West Virginia. I went back down there for a couple months and he's up here and and his good friend, Michael Vernon, I'll give a shout out to him. He's, Michael used to always say about Steve, he'd say he had one foot in the door and one foot out the door. He was a, you know, a mountain man. He lived on, hitchhiked all over the country. He lived by his wits and this, domestication was really new for him. So that was hard. So anyway, we separated, but we got back together and we we made some real, really good friends here. Martha Young and Richard Garrett, um, they had a daughter, Amber's age. They really helped us. Martha's the one that told me, you gotta have felt packs. You know, you gotta have just like the whole way to dress in the winter. And we just helped each other so much. and. And anyway, we just improved every year. That's all I can say. We started out with a tiny garden. Now we're on the arc of it and I've shrunk my garden the last two years. Um, I've gotten really smart about it so I can get more out of a smaller space. I have a greenhouse. 
we have running water, gravity fed, which Steve, the spring is only slightly higher than the actual, our house is on a little knoll. I'm sorry to say, I doubted him so bad. I'm like, no way. And he did it anyway. And I remember standing at the kitchen whenever it came in through the faucet and I'm like, oh my God. So it was so great. So anyway, I was a curious child and I love adventure and I love physical work and I like being put to the test. I tried really, really hard for a really long time not to take any help uh, from my parents. I mean, they're just, you know, they're, they, they didn't have a lot of money and, but they wanted to buy us various things. Like, can't we get you a wash machine? So I was very, I held them off. Um, and because I was really determined, I knew that I knew I didn't want to fail at this experiment. Mm -hmm. While it might've been a mission in the very beginning like that, it has evolved to just what I love. What can I say? I just don't want anything else besides this lifestyle. And it's such a comfort to me. You haven't said a word. I know, <laughs> I've been really enjoying your story. <laughs> I knew I would. <laughs> I'm a blabber. No, it's great. Tell me about some of the challenges you've encountered over the years beyond the, that first winter. What are some major challenges? Okay. So the actual homesteading stuff, you know, like that all had many failures, like the water. I mean, Steve had to dig a trench for it. And it's about, oh God, as many times as he said it, I'm sorry to say, I forget the amount of time, but two football fields away anyway. So, and that was through the woods. So he, he only had to bury it in a slight trench, but we had it freeze up a couple times. And I've, he has basically earned his living. Um, he's a craftsman and an artist. Steve builds birch bark canoes. And in the beginning, he made very little money. I mean, really for about 10 years. And I was this, I worked the straight jobs. I, uh, I'm a social worker and I worked as a social worker and sometimes getting out of here, uh, even though, I mean, the roads were kept so well, I couldn't believe it. I could actually drive out of here after a foot of snow. Um, and that kind of stuff. Um, and also the demands of this life and so I worked part-time mostly, which of course gave me time, but not money, you know? So we had an income, but because I wanted to be part-time, then that was really, so the finances, but you know, we got everything used. Just, there was a lot more flotsam and jetsam, I'll say back then. Like, I don't know, maybe there is now, there's probably more now, maybe it's just my perception, but it just seemed like anytime we needed a, we needed a new stove, we needed a fridge, there was always something new. It was always something used. We could get it. We we just did everything like that, the seat of our pants, like, and everybody else in this community of people that we ended up around did the same. So we had a lot of support by that. And that's another thing that I want to say is that I do not believe that I could have really stayed here without 
the friends that I made who were trying to do this. And even though everyone sort of had their different kind of shtick to it, or I think Steve could have, um, but I'm a much more social person. And so I just got to know all kinds of people. I, I made all kinds of connections and, and I didn't limit myself in any way to just my, you know, sort of counterculture back to land group of friends. It's just, I had no trouble with getting to know all kinds of people. Mm-hmm. and finding that so uh finding the support i needed and you know fix who fixes the car you know who does where do you take used solar batteries you know all that kind of stuff if you're just joining us you are listening to common ground radio on weru 89.9 fm blue hill on today's show we're discussing homesteading in maine I'm your host, Caitlin Barker, and I'm currently speaking with Angela DeRosa, who homesteads with her husband, Steve Kayard, in rural Maine. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, raising children on a homestead. Oh, yeah. That's where I get to say things like, I'm not a purist. I really tried hard. I, I really believe that children, that my daughters have their own times that they came of age in. They're not my times. My time, the times I came of age, the choices I made, the family, that was my life. They have a life. So I wasn't into this total imposition on them. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, they didn't participate. They totally participated. But, you know, if if that meant that on a Friday night, I had to lug myself out of here in the winter and drive them over to a dance in Guilford and, or take them to the movies or go on bowling or whatever they wanted to do. We did all that stuff. We always had kids here. There was always kids here. We've always had a ton of people, especially when I had teenagers, I had, I had crashing teenage teenagers here. You know, it was just because it's so far to drive. So, you know, you don't want your teenagers out on the roads. You want to keep them close, but you, you have to let them have their lives, you know? So that means, that means, you know, hiding out in your room upstairs while they're down here or outside or, you know, providing a lot of support um, for teens was a big deal. We had fun. We had so much fun. We, you know, like um, seasonally ice skating in the winter, cross country skiing. And I'm, my daughters both do downhill skiing. They learned it at school, but I don't do it. I There's some things that I just could never get up the nerve to learn. Um, and um, canoeing in the summer, swimming. I mean, we did, we had so much fun. And it also, we did in the beginning, uh, we, had, we had a TV. I was never like saying, oh, we can't have TV, shoot your TV or anything, but Oh, we had TV. They watched some things, uh, some TV, and but we also read books aloud, and that was really fun. Played tons of games and cooked, and it was uh, it was quite a shock when everyone grew up and left, and all the teenagers and all all the twenty somethings. And now, you know, it's like holy cow. And I have a, I have a sort of a little wish that some couple more would come back (laughs) but it's you know there's not much to offer in this part of Maine in terms of um but that's you know what I'm not saying that scratch that (laughs) 
there's a lot to offer here. My daughter's actually Amber um, and her husband have a sheep farm in Vermont. And Amber's, Amber's this great animal person. And, um, and, you know, they run this big farm and she works in, uh, she works for cooperative extension as a grazing specialist. And Lucy actually works for Mofka. Well, maybe we better not say that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, she, um, and she lives in Portland. And um, so she has a little garden spot down there and she wants to do gardening and all that. But yeah, their lives are different from this. And um, that's fine. So I have a granddaughter now though. So I'm thinking I'm going to be whispering in her ear like the old people always did. (laughs) So has the reason that you and Steve Homestead changed over the years? Well, you know, I said, I said when I was young, it was, it was, it was kind of more of a mission and it was part of this back to land movement and and I think that I, I'm not saying that it's not that now, but I'm not setting myself up as some person who has done it right. It's just, it's now, it's it's my home. Mm-hmm. It's my soul. It's me. <laughs> and I, and that's really, that, that feels a lot different. Of course, you know, I'm looking at 70 and that's a whole lot different than when you're in your early thirties, you know? So what can I say? I think hard about what I do. Like, it's like, oh my God, the plastics, the plastics, the PFAS, all that stuff. It's like, oh my God, Steve, uh, did you know there's PFAS in these receipts that I'm getting when I use a credit card? So what am I going to do now? I'm going, okay, we'll have to get them I'm going to have to start getting them on my computer and put them in a file. And then I can check my statement, that kind of stuff. I'm still doing it, Caitlin. It's like, okay, did you know that they put all these windmills in here? And I was like, Steve is like, I don't want the windmills. I can still hear them and they're killing birds. And I'm like, Steve, where are we going to get electricity? And I grew up with, I mean, I, I had a whole earth catalog and they had windmills in, in on the cover of it. And they're so romantic. And so I'm still there. I'm still, I will not ever stop thinking that what I do matters. I'm not going to say that, well, just because they're throwing everything away down there that I might as well just go ahead and throw it in there throw it away too. I won't ever get there. Mm-hmm. I just not. So that's my sort of fierce hanging on to um, my values thing. And, uh, but I have a comfortable life here. I have a, I have a great life. Mm-hmm. I have a comfortable bed. <laughs> I have a nice table. I have wonderful food. You know, I have great friends. I have family I feel like how I have everything to have what I have so this is what I want to say to have what I have and not to think about all the people that don't is just wrong 
So that doesn't mean that I'm always like that I live with guilt about my happiness or my satisfaction or whatever. It's just that I have this double vision where I'm grateful uh, for what I have. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a little thing I came up with. Amber and Lucy, if you're listening, you'll have to forgive me for this because I have all these like little sayings and things like I changed the epitaph on my tombstone, which is you know going to be like a big old piece of granite that I know someone who'll write on it for me. I've changed what I want to say, my last words. <laughs> uh, so now they are an acronym, GAF, which is um, gratitude, acceptance, forgiveness. Mm. Gotta have it. God, that's all I can say. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful I'm here. <laughs> well, so. thank you so much for talking with me today. What a great story and, and life you've lived so far and so much more to do your, your, um, determination and your work ethic, all of it, totally inspiring. And I appreciate you sharing it with me today and with all of our listeners. Oh, great. And just if anybody knows me out there, I still, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to everybody. (laughs) Well, we've reached the end of the show today. I want to extend a huge thank you to each of my guests for joining me in conversation. I'd also like to thank Claire Boland, who did all the editing for the show. And of course, my co-host, Holly Cedarholm, for welcoming me so warmly to the program. Common Ground Radio is brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU 89.9 FM Blue Hill and can be heard here on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. Archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU.org as well as on the WERU app. Thanks so much for listening. Holly and I will be back next month. Stay tuned now for more great programming.